I'm assuming most founders aren't born with this knowledge of how to sell this complex stuff. So they presumably developed it. And it's one of the easiest ways to improve your day rate and your your competence in the firm is to train your people and to train them well. Because if you go out and find someone who can sell, who's senior, who understands it, you're going to be paying them a fortune. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you might soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. If you want to keep the best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. And even better, Remote helps you rest easy by providing you the most comprehensive intellectual property protection and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered regions, guaranteeing you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything Remote offers from payroll to compliance and to benefits management for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employees onboarded during their first year. You can get 50% off Remote's full suite of global employment solutions for your first employee for three months. Just visit remote.com slash leaders and use the promo code leaders. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. I am really excited to welcome Professor Joe O'Mahony to the show today. I think I found Joe on LinkedIn and I just read his stuff and I said, like, I need to talk to this guy. So we're going to turn the camera and the mic on. Joe, please introduce yourself. Ledge, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I'm Professor Joe Omani. He's my, what I insist my students call me, but everyone else calls me Joe. Apart from my mother calls me Joseph when I'm in <laughs> trouble. I, I, I was in consulting. I was an internal consultant then a corporate consultant. Then I ran my own consultancy, started my own company, which I sold in 2007. And after all of that, I, I guess I wanted to, in, in the UK, going to academia was a bit like early retirement. So I thought I'd do that. I love teaching. I love writing. And so I thought I'd give that a go. And so I've been an academic for 15 years. And my specialism as I said before, when we were chatting, Ledge, um, you're not someone, I, I'm not someone you should invite to a dinner party, but my specialism is management consultancy. So I research and teach and write about management consultancy. And then I have my own side gig, which is two days a week, where I 
help consultancies grow. So my specialism is really helping consultancies that have sort of between two to 30 people scale and get bigger and usually with a view of selling. And so that's really that's really all I do these days. And I am fascinated with this. Maybe half the audience just tuned out, but I we've all in B2B, any business, we've all had to hire or think about hiring or have been or considered being, you know, some type of consultant around. Like I find it the most kind of meta area of of business because in in my work and practice, I typically find that uh the third party viewpoint is is quite valuable. And uh, on the other hand, I've found a lot of third party viewpoints are seeing people pay for consultants that uh, don't deliver and give, you know, give consulting kind of a, a bad name. And I just, I would love to, to frame that up because there's, there's so much there to, to draw on, on your expertise. Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, that's a, it's a really good point. So the wonderful thing about not being employed by a consultancy is that I can slag them off, <laughs> uh, as we would say over here. So I can, um, uh, I, I don't have any particular fondness of using consultants. And interestingly, 80% of spend on consultants is only done by five countries. So North America, uh, the UK, Germany and France account for 80%. It used to be 90% of all consulting spend. So in a lot of the world, using consultants is really quite an odd thing to do. When I went to Italy and asked their firms, you know, where do you go for advice? Would you use consultants? They laughed at me and say, no, use Luigi down the road. He's my brother's sister's friend's uncle. And so it is it, it is a phenomenon that in the UK and the US we take for granted, I think. But having said that, it's been one of the fastest growing sectors, which is really quite peculiar. It grows year on year whether during recession or during boom, it grows roughly 10% a year. And that market is getting bigger and bigger. The small firm market is growing even faster. So it has been an odd success story in many ways. And even more peculiar, the large firms have been, and this doesn't happen in pretty much any other business, the large firms have been the large firms for 100 years. So in different guises, you know, Boston, Bain, McKinsey, Deloitte, you know, they were all around 100 years ago. And people keep talking about the disruption of the consulting industry. but <laughs> It's not really, it's not really happening. <laughs> yes, I was I was a PwC uh, guy for uh, long enough to know that I wasn't going to do that anymore. But I, I am grateful for the experience. I did learn some things. And, you know, I, I think it laid some some groundwork early in my career. But uh, there's also no question that it's just in many times struck me as like this is an epic waste of time and money you know for for everybody involved it's just it was absurd you know some of the things that that you would see and it kind of go like but buying expertise makes a hell of a lot of sense and sometimes you would find people like it was like they were just paying the bill to maybe have a scapegoat or so it was just such a bizarre thing yeah yeah so i mean you know, consultants are often in the press when things go wrong. McKinsey, I don't know if you've noticed in the New York Times for the last few years, they've been hammered. But I I do think that around 50%, if not more, of the responsibility for failed consulting projects is down to clients. And don't get me wrong, it's, it's like it's like having someone, you know, come in to build an extension for you. 
if you give them an infinite rope, uh, you know, or an infinite budget, they're going to spend it. They're not going to say, oh, no, you don't really need those gold plated silver um, solar panels on your roof. They'll find a way of spending it. Um, and it's the same with consultants. And so when you use consultants, you know, use the same principles that you would if you were getting in, getting someone in, have an idea of what you want. Listen to lots of people, get quotes, don't go for the cheapest, don't go for the most expensive and really try and have a conversation with them. And it's one reason why I think procurement, you know, with the large projects that go wrong, very often it's down to procurement who have kind of ruined that close relationship. And I understand why they exist. But that close relationship that consultants and clients used to have, you used to have a conversation about, you know, the needs of the business, what business objectives you have, and then the project would be emergent as it went along. Whereas now procurement, you know, they'll kind of... Nail down that statement of work. You need to have the exact scope and the number yeah, of yeah. hours. And yeah, it's and it's yeah. it and ruins then, it. Then they'll get fired the cheapest, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I, I have had that experience where you don't get to talk to the people that, uh, or I, and, and being on the sales side, you know, I do get to talk to the people that actually want the thing and we have all our ideas together and then we get sent to procurement and it ruins it. <laughs> so, yeah. Sure, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, man, selling and marketing consulting and getting yourself out from under this conception that the consulting is kind of a bunch of fluff and bs is is also an, an interesting thing i noticed you and your partners work not only on the you know sort of advisory side but on the growth side of of small consultancies and obviously that's a sales and and marketing question i'd love to dive into that yeah sure so we um you know a, a lot of the small a lot of small consultancies are started by you know, very often ex-corporate consultants, you know, like yourself, ex-PWC, they leave, they're great at consulting. Some of them might be good at selling, but they very often have had no experience in running the company. They leave and they think I'm a great consultant. So therefore, I'm going to be a great consultancy owner. And it's simply not true. And, you know, a lot of, I think it was, I think the figure was 80% of small consultancies die in the first five years i believe that. Um, of their existence and that's the biggest well, I've seen, reason i've seen the people... t-shirt right it's like i'm yeah. not unemployed i'm a consultant you know so <laughs> yeah sure yeah yeah and it's it's tough you know there's you and the sales and marketing are one of the biggest things but also once you get once you get to after the first couple of years you know maybe your old friends or your old clients or your old firms giving you work but when that dries up Suddenly people have thought, well, where's my pipeline? You know, what, they have to think about brand and marketing. And and lots of people, including myself, really don't like selling. And you've got to, especially if you're growing the firm, you know, you've got all these hungry mouths and salaries going out. And, you, and there's a cash flow issue because very often you get paid at the end of the project. So it's um it's really tough. And I'd say I'd say around 40 to 50 percent of the issues I deal with are, I guess, marketing related in terms of are you selling the right thing? Are you pricing it well? And is your messaging good when it's going out? Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that to be the case. And, you know, you're right. These people are and, and not unlike starting any business. You step out of industry and you think, you know, I have a unique uh, subject matter expertise, but in no way has that subject matter expertise been anything to do with being an entrepreneur or, or a practitioner sure. or running a business. <laughs> 
And then you yeah. find that even as a, a sole practitioner consultant type of person, you have no pipeline. So 60% of your time is going to go to trying to figure out mm. who might actually care that I exist and pay yeah. me money. And then you're left with maybe 40% of your time, if no other overhead exists, to actually deliver things, which means you need to bill an absurd amount of money per hour unless you can figure out a value-based sell. And yeah. uh, it's really hard, like that new client treadmill. Then you get into a project, you finally get something, somebody paid you $20,000, you feel great, but you work too hard for that yeah. money, you finally collect it, and then you still have no pipeline. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, sure, and, yeah. and that, that treadmill yeah. is, is brutal. It is brutal. And, uh, you know, I've spoken of some of my clients have been founders that have found that so brutal, they've actually uh, sort of retrenched and they've become a smaller firm because they just simply don't want to deal with the hassle. And and ironically, being a good consultant, you know, my my advice to any, you know, sort of medium, once you get up to the 50 consultant mark, the, the leader can't do any consulting. They have to be selling they have to be leading they have to be mentoring they have to be worrying about the structure of the company and you know new markets big big investment decisions you can't be delivering and so ironically a lot of these people start firms because they love doing this stuff and they want to deliver client value and then five years down the line they find themselves in charge of a company where they're not they don't get you know, to they're do making anything. money yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 it's like artists starting uh, an art gallery. You know, you don't get to do art anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I think people, you know, forget that. And uh, and scaling a services business is really hard to to make a substantial yeah. enough gross margin that below the line you can pay the overhead and yourself. And uh, I don't know what you see yeah. as a typical gross margin in those businesses, I mean, but it's I hard. Yeah, it, I mean, it should, in theory, it should be easy, yeah, because you don't have any equipment, you don't even have to have offices, you've got no suppliers that you need to buy equipment for other than your associates and employees. So in theory, it should be a walk in the park, you know, there's... But, Just charge double um, what you pay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're all millionaires next right. year. But why but, doesn't that you know, work? Because that I sounds logical. Why doesn't it work? Yeah, it's a really good, it's a really good question. I think a lot of it is is the basics of business that, you know, running a small business that people don't know. I think one of the issues is around niche. So I don't think, especially, and you'll know this better than better than anyone, but in this day and age, it's not just having a niche because traditionally you would have a niche when you were starting a, a small firm because you accumulate expertise and you build a reputation. But now with all the marketing, if you don't have a niche, if you don't have a single buyer that you are targeting, then no one's going to be listening to you because, you, you know, I don't necessarily mean on the Facebook ads or the Google ads because you don't have to be doing that. But, you know, the it, it's really crucial that with a lot of firms, I say to them, you know, you're too diversified. What you need to do is to retrench, go back in order to grow bigger. So, you know, when people are starting off, they'll kind of do everything out of desperation. Oh, sure. Anybody who'll pay me? Sounds good. I do that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's fine. You know, we've all been there. We've all done it. But um, at some point, you need to be known as the best firm to, or one of the top three best firms to do X, Y, and Z. And interestingly, it's no longer. It used to, you know, it used to be that, you know, don't get me wrong, McKinsey, PwC, KPMG, they all still have the brand. But that brand's really been diluted over the last five to ten years they've sold so many partnerships 
They've got to keep creating money. Their margins have gone down as clients have got more sophisticated and procurement have come in. So they're commodifying their work so much, which means they're not doing the sort of more personalized quality work they used to do. They're kind of staffing things with MBA students. And so a lot of clients are now going to smaller firms. There's a lot of opportunity out there, but it's not easy. No, it's definitely it's definitely not easy to and I, I think I see people struggle a lot with once they run out that referral based network, you know, my friends and all these things. And you can get up to some substantial revenue just based on people you know. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if this resonates with you, but my my advice to those folks is I usually tell that, you know, if while you have those friendlies, you ought to be holding back 30% of revenue and investing that into direct sales and marketing channel development, because that's going to take about three years. Yeah, 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 definitely. My, all, all of A lot of my research shows that they, this won't be news to you, that, but the more you spend on digital marketing specifically, and I mean intelligent spend, I don't mean doing it all yourself. And this is the other thing you see a huge amount. It's um. You know, someone trying to do Facebook ads and a YouTube channel and get their website right and all the rest of it. Now, I firmly believe the founders or partners should be in charge of messaging because they understand the client problem better than anyone. But that whole, you know, it's such a game of expertise now. You want that to be outsourced to people who have, you know, do it 100 times a year. Right. Um, not Which ironically is the same reason that you would hire a consultant. But most people seem yeah, not sure. to do that, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's you know, you, I could probably, you know, if I'd say most clients that come to me, you know, if I you talk about the niche, uh, you talk about the messaging and the marketing, and then you perhaps have a conversation around pricing. And if you've got those basics right, that's you know, fifty percent of the problem solved. The rest of it is a bit more complicated, especially when it comes to growth, because you've got to talk about it's not. I always say consultancies operate in two markets. There's the market for the clients. But when you're growing and you're a small firm, you also operate in the market of employees or potential employees. And to attract those, I mean, why would a good employee go and work for, you know, JoeOmani.com as opposed to KPMG or McKinsey? Now, 99% of them wouldn't. And that 1% there's a lot of competition for them. So you've really got to work on the, your branding to your potential employees and market to them as well as you would do your clients. Right, right. Yeah, and and the whole thing with scaling up humans is it's, it's particularly if you have employees and you're going to have this sort of stepwise type of problem in your, in your cash flow. It's like as soon as I adopt an additional human, I have to start paying them and then I need yeah. to fill their capacity. <laughs> And filling their yeah. capacity requires me to sell more, which means I can deliver less. So yeah, now yeah. I drown under humans. And I, I personally have yeah. done this consulting company. With, yeah. All of a sudden I had eight consultants sitting around waiting for me to feed them. And yeah. uh, that was that was really tough. That's a hell of a lot yeah. of cash that you burn up and you say, shoot, I just liked being a consultant. I didn't want to be in the full-time sales game uh, and then pay all the money out to somebody else. <laughs> Yeah, it's tough. It's it, and I had this conversation today. There's, in fact, it was a U.S. client of mine in healthcare, and he's done incredibly well. He's built this consultancy from nothing to fifty people, and he didn't have a background in consulting. He's done really well, and he's like, 
he's doing all the business development and he's got 50 mouth to feed. And I said, I, I said to, I said, look, you need other people doing this. This needs to be part of your culture. You need to have business development as a core competence that you recruit on, train on, promote on. He's like, well, I, d- I don't, wouldn't trust anyone else. I'm very charismatic. I'm very good at it. I'm like, okay, but how many hours did you work last week? A hundred. And you know, it, it's off the chart, and that's unsustainable. You can't do hundred hour week. You won't be very charismatic after you do <laughs> that for two months. <laughs> no, no, and it's that building the sales competence throughout the organization, training for it, and promoting on it is is absolutely crucial because you can't. It can't all be on your shoulders as as the founder. Right, right, absolutely. One of my firms now is focused on, I'll say, closely held outsourced sales. That we will run the whole revenue operation for a services firm to solve that particular problem. It works well for a marketing firm or a strategic consultant or professional services or something like that. And one of the biggest challenges we help to address and see is that we must remove this burden from the founder because you can't be a CEO, you can't scale your culture, you can't hire more people, your operations will fall apart, your customer success function doesn't work. Go do that. Now, it's really hard for that founder to leave that seat because I can sell it better than anybody. You're right. It's too complicated. You know, Nobody else can explain it. Well, let's work on that because if it's too complicated and nobody else can explain it, it's probably pretty hard to buy. <laughs> yeah, so sure. let's let's fix yeah. that too. And uh, but you're so right that messaging and niche stuff is is absolutely yeah critical. And the function of handing that off, I think, gets missed. You think, oh, I'll just hire a salesperson. Yeah, yeah. How the hell will they know what to do? <laughs> yeah, and if the same with you know, I'm I'm assuming most founders aren't born with this knowledge of how to sell this complex stuff. So they presumably developed it. And it's one of the easiest ways to improve your day rate and your your competence in the firm is to train your people and to train them well. Because if you go out and find someone who can sell, who's senior, who understands it, you're going to be paying them a fortune. And that's another challenge for your founder. You know, again, talking to this guy today, is, in fact, this was a different client. He said, I, I've got this firm and I've, you know, I, I haven't got space to train these people. And I'm like, you are a cash rich business. Spend some of this money. You know, don't take out 150 grand salary. Spend some of this money on developing your people, build the value of the firm. And then in five years, it's going to pay dividends to you. Sure. So let's talk about pricing. You mentioned that as a, as a big, thing. Sure, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, that that. In a small firm, one, two person type of situation, I see the imposter syndrome, you know, all the time where they're vastly undercharging, they're terrified to raise the rate. And on the other side, you know, you you can sort of not understand your competitive dynamics and just lose bids all the time because you don't have your pricing aligned with your messaging. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, there's a couple of strategic things. One is, as we've said before, being in the right niche, you know, if you're if you're trying to sell service X to the public sector in Hungary, you know, it's not going to be pretty. If you're doing it in the finance sector in Switzerland, you're going to be laughing. And so getting that, get, and it's not just the market, it's the service and the brand and all the rest of it. So getting that right is probably the biggest thing that people can do. So the niche really is going to drive 
but you need to nail that before you even think about how do I price out. Definitely, definitely. And then and then the second strategic thing is really spending time and money understanding your client problems. And most people will say, you know, I'll be chatting to them, they'll say, oh, I'll say, what are your client problems? They'll, they'll write them down. And I say, well, how do you know? And they say, well, you know, I've had 20 years experience before I became a consultant. I did this. And I said, well, when did you last talk to a client? And they say, oh, this morning. When did you last talk to a client about their challenges that you're not working on? Then you get a blank. And so having that consistent research, communication, sometimes even, you know, paying clients for their, their advice to you. Absolutely crucial because all of your messaging, as you know, comes from that. And, and even get a third party to go ask because your client won't tell you because now you have yeah. a relationship with your client and they, you know, it, you, you need a facilitator sometimes to even yep. do a cohort analysis of your current customer. Why the hell do these people do business with us? Why do they keep paying the bill? I want to know. And it's almost invariably not what the person around the whiteboard thinking about their own business believes it to be. Def definitely. And, and you know, a lot of the work I do is around this sort of creating this unique value proposition. And very often I'll say to the firm, you know, what's your what, what's your value proposition? And they'll say something. Then we'll go and do the research and we'll come back and present it. And the clients won't care about their method. You know, the firm will be banging on about their method and it's world class. It's our unique proprietary process that allows yeah, us yeah. to, you know, and, and we care yeah. more and we're yeah. invested and we yeah, make yeah. a custom something, something, something for every we client. We great people. You know, <laughs> and, and, and being in the sales seat, it kills us because, you know, we just kind of go, that's not different because that's what everybody <laughs> else is telling them to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you may well, do that and that may be true, but yes. those are reasons that you retain clients. Those are not reasons that you will close them. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Yes, yeah, and 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 so they, I guess they're the strategic things, and then you get down to the more, I guess, practical advice about about pricing. And you're completely right about imposter syndrome, and very few firms, especially small firms, do act, do actual competitive research on their competitors in terms of what they're pricing. Some of them don't ask their clients about what they pay. You know, it's always worth asking. You'd be surprised though, and they will tell you often. You know, just say oh, or yeah, if, you, yeah. if you lose a bid, ask. You know, yeah, who yeah, did you yeah. go with and what did they, you know, and, you know, without betraying any confidences, can you tell me anything about what they offered that was better than mine? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I guess one thing I would say that I, I don't think is common knowledge. So I, I've been researching to, to give some validity to what I'm about to say. I've um, the, the book I, I wrote was or most recent book was based on. 100 plus interviews with founders who grew and sold their firms. And I did interviews, a couple of interviews, did surveys and all the rest of it. But aside from that, I've been researching the consulting industry for 15, 16 years now. And prior to that was in the industry. And there's, don't get me wrong, you know, value pricing has its place. But when I go on the web, I'm bombarded by people saying value pricing, value pricing, value pricing. And I mean, the key thing is it, it, it doesn't, it's not applicable to many situations. The value pricing, and also many clients aren't happy taking that risk. When you ask clients what they prefer, they prefer fixed pricing. And there are ways to manage fixed, to propose fixed pricing without losing margin on it. And that's, that's what happens very often. Someone will say, okay, I'm scoping the project. I'll do it for 50,000. And then they find they're working too hard, they're paying too many people, and they're, they're not. But if you've got a good change project, uh, change process in, if you give the client options, 
if the client negotiates and you say, well, what, what are we going to take out? Those kind of principles can make fixed pricing work. And the key thing for me about fixed pricing and value pricing isn't so much that it creates higher margins, although that is true, is that it improves efficiencies in your own firm. If you're charging by the hour, there's no incentive for you to become more efficient, to outsource some things, to automate some things, to add value in these other areas, to do any investment in SaaS or apps or online courses, because you're getting paid by the hour. Whereas if you're paid for the value that you're creating or you're paid for a fixed project, there's a huge incentive to your margin if you can reduce your costs or deliver higher value, and then your margins grow. So it's, it's you know, it's quite, it's quite an important thing. And don't get me wrong, some of the firms I spoke to who were grown successfully sold did only do time and materials, but they were in a minority. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that sales process of the firm uh, because it, it's a hard business to exit, uh, particularly if you build too much of the sort of personality around yourself. You know, I can't sell myself, right? You know, I, ha- I need to have something that I can detach from as the owner so that I, I can sell it. And in, in addition to that, you are typically told that, you know, well, services firms only sell for, you know, one times revenue, uh, depend, unless you can figure out some kind of recurring uh, model or licensing and that drives everybody, well, I should productize my business. I should make a SaaS tool for our process. And that'd be so much better. I'll get MRR. I get higher multiple because I'm a SaaS business. And I just, I find so much of these myths. So maybe your research research could shed, shed some light on that. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, I mean, I get a, I, I, I've had a lot of founders come to me and say, I've got a business. I'm coming up to retirement. I want to sell. Can you help? And, and we're turning over 12 million and we've got EBITDA of 20%. And then you look at the firm and you think, well, this this isn't sellable. It's not in a niche. So when buyers buy, I'm not talking about private equity. I'm talking about strategic buyers. When they buy, they're typically looking to fill a specific hole. So it will be a quality improvement operations firm that work on automotive in Germany. And so getting that proposition really clear and being aware of what the market's looking for. It has to like, I think they call that accretive. Uh, accretive yeah, investments sure. are yeah. better, right? So. Yeah, and EBITDA is part, is the basis for, for the sale. You know, that's what they'll give you the multiple on. And typically you would get between seven and nine times EBITDA. And as you say, around 1.1 to 1.2 times, times revenue. But that's kind of the basis. The, the multiple is really heavily dependent on, if I'm going to put it really simply, I would say, the extent to which the firm would continue if the founders were all hit by a bus um, or the senior partners were hit by a bus. So all of that stuff around, you know, processes, pipeline, software, you know, consistent marketing, intellectual property. If you have built that up, you have an asset in the firm. If it's a group of great people who do great work, but there's no assets, you know, and it's not it's not just the multiple that's affected. It's also the the earnout. So an, an average earnout for a consultancy founder would be three years. If you don't have IP, if you don't have the systems, you know, I mean sufficient IP and sufficient systems, you know, that will go up to five years, um, six years. 
if I have, you know, worked with a couple of people and they've managed to exit with, you know, with virtually no earnout at all. There's kind of a short handover process because they, you know, they've got their succession management done. They've got their IP done. It was a well-oiled machine. And it's there's a, there's a there's a mental flip that you have to do as a founder because you're told it's all about EBITDA and your margins, 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 revenue, revenue. But then one, you know, three or four years before you sell, rather than trying to eke up that EBITDA by an extra percentage point or two, you're actually better spending the time and money on the infrastructure to get that multiple up. So, you know, if you can improve the multiple from seven to 11, then you're really making much more difference than if you push the EBITDA up by 2%, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. And I mean, you know, the classic way to push up EBITDA would be to, you know, fire all your salespeople and uh, sure. cut, cut your senior talent and cut your own yeah. salary and, yeah. you know, try to fake out due diligence. And that that doesn't work because yeah. the value of the whole thing, you know, yeah. uh, gets smashed then. Yeah. And I think, you know, people make make that mistake that uh, that they don't have to show the trending uh, yeah. nature of the business from that IP development. So, yeah. I, and, you know, it's interesting hearing all this, too, because these are not things that would be different from really any other type of business. Um, and obviously you would try to come up with some kind of recurring cash flow model if you, if you can. A subscription base or productized yeah. services yeah. is a wonderful thing to do. We help clients yeah. do that a lot, too. So but. I don't often find practitioners of these sorts who, you know, prepare for this type of scenario. Like they'll just be billing hours until they're they drop dead. Yeah, and and that's not yeah you know, that's not a, a something to look forward to. So. No. <laughs> no, and it's it's sad in some ways because I mean, don't get me wrong, growing a firm isn't for everyone. As long as you make that decision strategically. There's a lot of people who, you know, they work hard their whole lives. They're on a good salary, don't get me wrong. And they get to the end of it and they think, oh, if I built systems, if I built IP, if I'd done succession planning, then I could have handed this over. Whereas very often they're in a position that once they retire, the firm's pretty much dead. And and the management buyout thing doesn't work particularly well. They're very... Yeah, you want to buy my client list? Like, no, yeah, no, yeah. I don't. I sure yeah. don't. <laughs> yeah, I like to buy money. I don't like to buy. It. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's. I think that's a tough pill. So I hope. I hope somebody's listening that can start doing some of those things now. Joe, if if any of the listeners are interested in in your practice and your work, how would they best reach out to you? Sure. Okay. So I have a website which is joeomani.com. And if you type in Joe Omani and consulting, you will find my books and blog. And I'm even starting my own podcast in a, oh, God in, bless in, you. In a month or so. I know. I, I think I think everyone, including my mum, has their own podcast now. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, and I'm always up for just chatting. You know, I'm I'm primarily, you know, I, I, as I say, three days a week, I'm a professor at the university. I love teaching. I love telling my students stories. So even if someone wants to just chew the cut, I'm more than happy to um to have a chat about some of their stories. Great. And we'll we'll get links out to to the social and the different places and uh, and books and such. So uh, Joe, thanks so much for uh, for joining us. Really appreciated the insights today. Thank you, Ledge. It's a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.